29, Highway to Happiness, Part 1. Okay, let's go ahead and bow and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father God, we thank you for this day that you have given to us. Lord, we thank you for the, the word of God that you have given to us, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So many wonderful truths that we can cling to in this life and throughout all of eternity. Thank you, Father, that the Lord is our strength and our song, and he also is, has become our salvation. Thank you, Father, for your merciful kindness, that it is great toward us, and that your truth endureth forever. We love you. We just know there's so many truths in the Beatitudes that we'll begin to look at this morning. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would impress upon every heart here the, the, uh, the depths of your word and the, the necessity that we have to live beatific lives that would um, reflect you and your glory. And Lord, I just pray your Spirit would have his will and way in every heart here. There's so much meat to this lesson. And I can't possibly give it all out, but I know that um, through your Holy Spirit activating your word that you can. You can reach the depths of our souls. Prove us, Lord. Try us. Test us. And conform us into your image as we do look at these Beatitudes. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A strong expectation must have filled the air. Twelve men had just been selected by the Lord Jesus for some very special purpose. And the men themselves must have sensed that great words were soon going to be filling their ears because they pressed about the, their master when he seated himself somewhere on a hill northwest of Capernaum. Perhaps those men thought that a very significant announcement was about to be made in regard to the kingdom, which surely the master was soon to establish. So a feeling of growing anticipation must have pervaded the growing assembly sitting there on the green hillside of that open-air sanctuary. Eager faces everywhere must have been focused on the Lord Jesus. Hearts must have been filled with thoughts of future glory. Rome, under this mighty divine miracle worker, Rome surely would be defeated. Poor peasants and common fishermen and their families were all hoping that their hard circumstances under Rome were about to change. Israel was about to be honored before all the nations. No longer would they have to go poor, be poor and go hungry so that Rome could receive her taxes. No longer would they mourn in sorrow over their oppression and their hardships and all their fears. No longer would they look meek and weak before the mighty Roman Goliath because they had another David among them. However, when the Lord Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, as it tells us in Matthew 5, 2, his audience heard nothing that would flatter their pride or fan their ambitious hopes for a future without Rome, nor did they hear anything that would feed, feed their desire for vengeance. Instead, they heard something altogether strange and new. They heard teaching which was contrary to everything that they had ever heard from their religious rulers. Yet as they listened, as you can imagine, remember last week when we read through the entire sermon in, in one setting, as, you, as they heard Jesus speak these words and probably added more to them as well, they were mesmerized. They were absolutely mesmerized. A sweetness of divine love flowed out from the presence of the teacher. 
and his words fell like rain upon their dry souls. Here was one who spoke with an authority that was totally his own and with power that was his own. Every, everyone there that day would have realized <clears throat> that here was one who could read the secrets of the soul, but he did so with such tender compassion and not with condemnation, again, like their religious rulers. As they listened, they heard the words of wisdom and truth, which humanity in all ages, down through the corridor of ages, so desperately needs to learn. They heard the words of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached. And the sermon began with what is called the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude comes from the Latin, and it means blessing. Now, in our beginning look at the Beatitudes, which, by the way, we find in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12, we are going to discuss, first of all, some generalities about the Beatitudes, and then we are going to discuss each of the, well, I should have said <laughs> the first two. In your books, it says three, but I, I didn't get that far. I always slow down, you know, with age. I don't know how in the world I ever taught three Beatitudes the first time around, because we're, it, I was pushing it to get poverty of spirit and mournfulness just in this lesson. So we're going to save meekness, and um, the next one after that, hunger and thirst after righteousness. I'll probably only be able to cover two each week, so it may, instead of taking us only two, two lessons, it may take us three or four. We'll see. We'll let the Lord lead. But today we're going to look at just poverty of spirit under the specifics of the Beatitudes and mournfulness. <clears throat> but we will begin by looking at some generalities about all eight of the Beatitudes. According to the great Puritan Thomas Watson, the Beatitudes are the sacred paradoxes because they tell us, or at least Jesus tells us by them, that opposites can and often do coexist. Some of you know that by who you are married to. Opposites can coexist. Another man named G.K. Chesterton defined a paradox these are the divine paradoxes or the sacred paradoxes of Scripture, the Beatitudes. He defined a paradox as truth standing on its head, calling for attention. The Lord Jesus was a master at paradoxes because he not only taught them, but he lived them out before the people. He taught, for example, that the last shall be first. He taught that giving is receiving, that dying is living, that losing is finding, and that the least is what? The least in the kingdom is the greatest. He taught that serving is ruling, and he taught that weakness is strength, to name just a few of the paradoxes that he not only taught but lived out. And he began his greatest sermon that he ever preached with some equally shocking paradoxes. He said, in effect, that the poor are rich. And he said that the sad are happy. And he said that the meek are winners. You'll appreciate my artwork there. <laughs> he said that the hungry are filled. And that the persecuted are joyful, to name just a few. Indeed, then, we could say that the first 
hearers of this sermon must have said to themselves, what a strange teaching this young itinerant preacher from Galilee is giving to us. What paradoxes he is speaking. He is turning truth on its head. All right, that was under the division of the divine paradoxes. Let's look now at some different perspectives about the Beatitudes. The theme of the sermon is the characteristics of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God's citizens. That's the theme. As the Lord prepared to speak, he may well have thought about other kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of Satan, the kingdom, you know, and his kingdom of darkness, and the many varied kingdoms of men which had come and gone and which would continue to come and go. Kingdoms where men valued material things. Kingdoms where, you know, men worship mammon money and pay enormous prices to attempt to gain material things and their own temporary positions of eminence. He thought of the thousands of people both then, back then, and on into the future who would put uh, health and wealth at the top of their priority list. He knew he needed, at this point in time, he knew he needed to reveal to his audience something that they seemed to have lost sight of. They would not understand all that he was going to teach them, but he had to begin to tell them about the characteristics of the kingdom of heaven which he was offering to them and the characteristics of kingdom citizens. They were going to hear through this sermon how vastly different the kingdom of God citizen is to be in his or her perspective of this life and the next life compared with the citizens of this world. So as we look through the Sermon on the Mount, we are going to definitely see not only divine paradoxes, but we are going to see some very different perspectives from the kingdom citizen compared to the, uh, the world's citizen. Okay, then we'll move on to part C, deity's plan. The Lord Jesus, through the teaching of the Beatitudes and, of course, other passages in the Sermon on the Mount, would also teach about the true nature of religion. As we have repeatedly seen, the Jews of Israel, meaning the religious rulers, had conjured up their own ideas about religion. The Pharisees, in effect, had come to believe in a works system, a works religion, because that is essentially what they had done to Judaism. They had turned it into a works religion. The Sadducees, however, had developed a worldly religion. Their God became their, their wealth, their possessions. The Essenes had decided on a withdrawn religion, remember? They were the ones who said, well, the world is so bad, it's so corrupt, that uh, we're just going to remove ourselves from it. So they separated themselves from it completely. They had like a withdrawn religion. And then the Zealots, who hated their Gentile oppressors, the Romans, put their faith in a warfare religion. They were the ones who wanted to fight Rome. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught against, against a works religion such as the Pharisees had um, in one situation where he said, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case see the uh, kingdom of God. So he taught against a works religion such as the scribes and the Pharisees. He also taught against a worldly religion such as the Sadducees had when he said, 
lay up for yourselves treasures, not here on earth like they were doing, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And he taught against a withdrawn religion when he said, don't hide your light under a bushel. And he taught against a warfare religion when he said, bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who, who persecute you. What Jesus taught, and I came up with this, but just to stick with the W's, but it's very appropriate. He came up with a, a within religion, but I don't like to use religion when it comes to Christianity because it really is a, is a relationship that we have with the living God. So the Sermon on the Mount is all about the inner man. It is all about the, the heart, the within part of us. So he taught through the sermon a within relationship that we can have with the, the king of the kingdom. All right, now when we come to the descriptive personality and the divine power, I'm just going to kind of work those two together so we can get on to the Beatitudes. We're moving fast here because the Beatitudes are the important part. As we do look at the Beatitudes, please do not get it in your mind that they are merely for the super saints of Christianity, that there's no way that God can expect you to be a beatific type of Christian. If you belong to him and you are truly born again, you will be, to some degree, a beatitude type of believer. In fact, God provides us with his own spirit, the Holy Spirit, so that we can be beatitude type Christians. Dr. J. Vernon McGee, in his commentary on the book of Matthew, stated that the beatitudes are just that, the be attitudes. They are the be attitudes. He said they're not the do attitudes, they're the be attitudes. They are a description of what the subjects of God's kingdom are, not what they should do. A true Christian, in other words, a true born-again believer, will be poor in spirit. He will be meek. He will be a peacemaker, etc., None of the Beatitudes, if you, well, we'll be reading them in a minute, but uh, when you look at them, they don't tell a person how to become poor in spirit, do they? It j he just says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. They don't tell us how to become meek or how to become uh, spiritually hungry. But rather, they tell us what we will be if we truly are a Christian and the Holy Spirit is working on us. Now, as we go through our Beatitude study, you are going to quickly find that the virtues described here are not the virtues that you find in unsaved people because you might think when you just read through them that you know some unsaved people who are meek, but as we discuss them, you will realize these are not the, the virtues of unsaved people because these virtues are spirit-produced. Produ they can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. Also, we must be very careful... Um, to not confuse these spirit-produced beatific virtues with natural traits or with personal temperaments. You know, many people might look, for example, at an unsaved, very kind, quiet, docile, um, gentle person and conclude that that person is poor in spirit or that that person is meek. But this does not necessarily mean that that person 
has the spirit produced, well, if they're unsaved, it, it definitely means that they do not have the spirit produced virtue of poverty of spirit or of meekness. So don't confuse these beatitude virtues with natural temperaments and personality traits. And I think this is going to become evident as we look at these virtues and learn, you know, what they actually refer to. The virtues of the Beatitudes, make no mistake about this, the, the virtues of the Beatitudes are supernatural qualities of character that can only be produced in the inner man by the Spirit of God. It's also true that these virtues will be more fully developed as a Christian grows in spiritual maturity. So as he grows spiritually, he will have more and more poverty of spirit, more and more meekness. So they grow throughout your life, or they should, unless you don't grow and you stay stagnant. Okay, divided parts. Um, we are going to find that each of the beatific virtues contains a threefold pattern. First of all, the Lord pronounced in each one of them, each one of the eight, he pronounced the words, blessed are. That's how he begins each one. And that is what we call the ascription for each, each, blessed are. Now, contrary to what is commonly thought, the word blessed does not simply mean happy. Even though I think there are some Bible translations that, that translate it that way. So that it would read, happy are the poor in spirit. But it does not simply mean happy. The Lord Jesus was not declaring in these Beatitudes how people feel. Rather, he was making an objective declaration about what God thinks of them. When he says blessed is or blessed are, he's making a declaration of God's approval on the individual who is, for example, poor in spirit. So blessed really means to be approved. When God blesses us, we receive his divine uh, congratulations. We receive his divine smile. He's smiling upon us. He's, a, he's approving of us. Or as Max Lucado states in his book, um, The Applause of Heaven, we receive the applause of heaven. It's much more than just a nice word from God. It's actually a pronouncement of what we are in his eyes, we are approved. It's like he's putting his stamp of approval on us. The one who is poor in spirit, I should say. You know, blessed is the poor in spirit. He gets a stamp of approval or a divine smile from God. Now, having said that, there's also no doubt that God's approval will bring with it feelings of happiness to the one who is approved. If you know that you have God's approval, then that is going to just naturally bring happiness to you. But the happiness of which we are talking, going to be talking about in these um, Beatitudes is not the kind of happiness that the world is familiar with. You know, the happiness which is based on external circumstances. That's where they get the word happiness from happenings. You know, happiness is dependent on, on happenings in your, life's, your life. If this if such and such happens, I will be happy. If such and such doesn't happen, I will not be happy. That's the way the world looks at happiness. But the biblical counterpart to the world's concept of, ha of happiness is really an inner contentment, you know, a, a joy and a peace of the soul, which the believer can have regardless of circumstances, correct? 
like Paul, the Apostle Paul, even in jail, he could have that kind of happiness, that kind of inner contentment. He said no matter what state he found himself in, you know, whether it was North Carolina or Washington State. <laughs> now, as we consider the Beatitudes, we're going to need to ask ourselves if God's blessing or God's approval means more to us than anything else. We're going to really do some soul-searching. I tell you what, I was studying just poverty of spirit, and I was beginning to wonder, and mourning. When I got into the morning, I was really checking out and make sure I was really saved. I mean, this stuff is convicting when you get into it. Um, do, do we really, really, is God's approval more important to us than anything else? You know, our own happiness, our own uh, comfort zones, uh, is it more important to us than our husband's approval? Is it more imp- important to us than our children's approval of us or perhaps your parents' approval? Uh, does it mean more than your, the approval of your friends or your boss or your peers or your employees or your fellow Christian brothers and sisters, your church family, your pastor? The bottom line question is not going to really be do we want to be happy. That's not really the issue. Do we want to be happy? The bottom line question is, do we really and truly want God's divine smile of approval on our lives? Do we want his stamp of approval, regardless of what the cost might be to get that? And that's a, I mean, that's a soul-searching question. Well, following the ascription of blessedness, which begins each one of these beatitudes then the lord jesus will give the respective virtue um, and those eight specific beatitude virtues are poverty of spirit mournfulness meekness a hunger and thirst after righteousness mercy purity in heart being a peacemaker and suffering for righteousness sake the first four really relate more specifically with man's relationship to God, whereas the last four really relate more specifically to man's relationship with his fellow man. And that is also interesting. Now, Jesus was not speaking here about eight different kinds of kingdom citizens. In other words, you know, one kind of, one of, over here, one of you might be a a meek kingdom citizen, and somebody over here, might be a peacemaker, kingdom, citizen, etc. Rather, he described the characteristics and virtues that should be true for every kingdom citizen. In other words, if you're truly born again, and when I say kingdom citizen, you know that I'm that we talked about last week the kingdom of heaven, even though it isn't here literally on earth with Jesus reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Where does it exist right now? It's in our hearts. The kingdom is within us. If you're born again, you are a kingdom citizen. Your citizenship isn't in this world. It's in the kingdom of heaven. So every one of us should have all eight of these uh, beatitude virtues. And that makes them similar to the fruit of the Spirit. You know, as listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Every born again believer has all of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, uh, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. We all have, to various degrees, it's unlike the spiritual gifts because not we don't have all of the spiritual gifts. But we do have all of the fruit of the Spirit and we do have all of the beatitude virtues. 
Now, the third and final part of each beatitude is the reward or the consequence of the blessedness. And those rewards, you will notice, begin and end with, with which one? The kingdom of heaven begins and ends the rewards. So everything else is sort of, uh, uh, well, they're the bookends and everything else is in, in the middle. All the other things are promises of possessing God's kingdom. They are added divine rewards. We get the kingdom of heaven, but we also get these added rewards of comfort. We inherit the earth. We have satisfaction, spiritual satisfaction. We receive mercy. We see God, and we are called the children of God. Okay, moving along, along here, let's look at um, deliberate progression. You know what? That didn't make it to my outline. It's in your books, isn't it? Okay, didn't make it that far. All right, deliberate progression. This is interesting. Um, as I mentioned, all true Christians possess the beatific virtues, all of them, but to various degrees. However, those those character virtues will be more fully developed in the order, this is what makes it interesting, in the order, oops, I should put this back up here, in which they are presented. They're going to be for, more fully developed in the order in which Jesus presented them as the Christian grows in his spiritual maturity. I can't talk today. <laughs> And this is another evidence of the brilliance of the one who spoke these Beatitudes. And if you don't understand what I'm saying, let, just listen now because I'm going to explain what I'm talking about. The order is, is beautiful. The order that he gave them is perfect. Being poor in spirit, and that's, of course, the first Beatitude, and it speaks of a recognition of one's spiritual and moral unworthiness. In other words, a recognition of our sinfulness before a holy God being poor in spirit will lead to a mournfulness over that sin, which is the second beatitude. Only the person who has acknowledged his spiritual bankruptcy, poor in spirit, and has deeply sorrowed mournfulness over his humanly helpless condition of sinfulness will be then meek enough, which is the third beatitude, to call out, you know, meek, humble enough to call out to God for salvation. And then having done this, he will then understand the magnitude of what God in Christ has done for him, and he will hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, which is the fourth beatitude. As he progressively hungers and is filled spiritually, he will become increasingly, what? Merciful. Fifth beatitude. He will become increasingly merciful towards others because he will have understood how merciful God had been in forgiving him. The maturing believer will also become increasingly sanctified or set apart, increasingly holy, which will produce an ever-increasing purity of his heart, the sixth beatitude. And the purity of his heart will result in a peacemaking spirit which is the seventh beatitude. He will want to share with others both the peace with God and the peace of God that he has found. Peacemaking is really a soul winning. That's what it's all about, sharing with others the peace that they can have with God. So he will become a soul winner. 
And um, when men make peace with God, they also find a greater peace attitude toward their brothers and sisters, don't they? When you make peace with God, when you have peace this way, you just naturally have more peace this way. The kingdom citizen now, whose beatific virtues have matured to this level, which is so far above the level of the world, that Christian is going to soon discover, if he hasn't already by this point in time, that he is more and more despised and hated by the world. He will be hated for causing men's sin-infected lives to sting by the saltiness of his life. He will be hated for exposing men's darkness with the light of truth that he shares with them and with the godliness he exhibits in his lifestyle. So the world will persecute him, and he will have the privilege, and it is a privilege, of suffering for righteousness' sake, which is the eighth beatitude. The spiritually mature Christian will even be able to rejoice and be exceeding glad for his sufferings. For Christ's namesake. He will understand that his suffering is his identity with Christ, and that in itself is reward for him. But he will also understand that great will be his reward in heaven, as it tells us in, in uh, verse 12. So you see what I'm saying there? That there is this deliberate progression, and they, the Lord spoke the Beatitudes in perfect order. He is so wise. Okay, now we get to the specifics of the Beatitudes, part two of our outline, and we'll begin by talking about poverty of spirit. Let's look, let's just read, it won't take but a minute, let me just read all of the Beatitudes, all eight of them, starting in verse three, well, verse two when it says, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those are the two we're going to cover this morning. Then in uh, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Okay, those are the Beatitudes. The religious rulers of Israel in the days of the Lord Jesus felt that they were rich in spiritual treasures and in spiritual knowledge and blessings. They are typified, really, by the attitude of that praying Pharisee in Luke 18, 11, who said, in effect, God, I am so thankful that I am not like other men, like that sorry publican back there praying. He typified the religious rulers at the time of Jesus. And they were really, they were really much like many within Christendom today, who are represented by the church of the Laodiceans. Remember the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3? They felt that they were rich and that they were increased with goods and in need of nothing, not even realizing you know, that Jesus was on the outside of their church. They thought they were in need of nothing. 
Jesus had attempted to offer the religious rulers of Israel his cup of blessing. But they had turned it down. And they had turned it down not only with scorn, but with hostility. Those who, are, who think that they are whole and have no need of the physician, um, have no need of the physician. Remember when we talked about that, when he said that to them? They who think they're okay, that they don't have a, a sickness, don't need a physician. Just as, of course, his point was that those who think that they are spiritually good, spiritually righteous, are content with their own righteousness. So they do not seek to become partakers of the grace and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pride feels no need. Have you ever met proud people? They don't think they have any need. Pride feels no need, and therefore it closes its heart to the, to the Lord and the blessings that he can give. The self-righteous think that they are full, so they go away empty. On the other hand, those who know that they cannot possibly save themselves, those who, like the publican in the synagogue that day praying, those who know that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked in the sight of God, in other words, those who recognize and understand that they are spiritually bankrupt, are those who appreciate the help that they can get, get for their hopeless, helpless condition from, from the Savior, from the Lord Jesus. They are like the penitent thief, remember, hanging next to the Lord on the cross, whose hearts um, have been moved by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to see that there is nothing good in themselves. They see that all that they have ever attempted to do by way of quote-unquote good works, nothing but filthy rags, because they realize that everything that it was supposed, supposedly righteous that they had attempted to do was mingled with self and with sin. Poverty of spirit is the recognition of one's own personal moral unworthiness. The poor in spirit understand that they have nothing, nothing within themselves to, to commend them to God. Now make sure you understand that poverty of spirit is not the absence of self-worth which is different from recognizing your own unworthiness. It's not the same as, you know, just having, uh, believing that you are a total zero. It doesn't mean that a person who is blessed by God for poverty of spirit is the one who has convinced himself that he has no value at all. You know, big zero. What does it say in the scripture? Apart from him, we can do nothing. It doesn't say apart from Christ, we are nothing. That would be totally contrary to the teaching of the scripture because Christ's own death on the cross on our behalf teaches us that he sees us as being of tremendous value. He gave his life for us, did he not? That doesn't mean we're of no value. That means we're of tremendous value. He would not have bought us with such great price if we were of no value. So there's a big difference. It's... Um, had, I had an example of an infant, and now I'm trying to think how I had that example. An infant, okay, a little, a little baby can do absolutely nothing for himself, right? Um, he, he, you could say he has poverty of spirit. He may not know he can't do anything for himself, so maybe he doesn't have poverty. But he can do nothing for himself, so that's comparable to us. There's no, nothing we can do 
to save ourselves for ourselves. And yet that doesn't mean we don't love that little infant and that he has no value, right? We de def and that's how Jesus looks at us. We can't do anything for ourselves, but that doesn't mean we have no value. He loves us. He loves us with a, an unending, everlasting love. All right, now another thing poverty of spirit does not refer to is, I sort of touched on this earlier, but does not refer to shyness. You know, just because a person may be quiet or, or shy or introverted does not mean that that person is uh, or has poverty of spirit. There are many shy people who are actually very proud. A lot of times, and this isn't always true, but a lot of times people are shy because they're, they're too proud to, to speak out and make a mistake or make a fool of themselves. I overcame that years ago. I make a fool of myself all the time. <laughs> no, but I used to be extremely shy all through grammar school, all through high school, all through college. I never ever rose my, rose my hand, raised my hand to volunteer a question. I was very, very shy, but that did not mean that I had poverty of spirit because I was lost. I had no poverty of spirit. And a lot of that was really pride, that I didn't want to make a mistake, you know. But uh, just make sure you understand that. Nor does having poverty of spirit mean that a person is gutless, you know, spiritually anemic. Nor does it refer to the individual who makes a great show of his humility. Have you ever met anybody like that? Or his pietism. That was really the religious rulers going about acting like they were so humble and so pious and they put on a long face when they were fasting so that everybody would know how humble and meek that is not what real poverty of spirit is at all <clears throat> actually the person who goes around trying to show you how humble he is and tells you how humble he is <laughs> isn't humble at all so what does being poor in spirit mean <clears throat> well the greek word used for poor comes from a verbal root that speaks of cowering and cringing about like a beggar. It denotes a person who is so poor that he has to gain his living by begging. He is totally dependent uh, for his existence on the giving of others. So the Lord Jesus was saying, blessed are the beggarly poor in spirit. The person who has poverty of spirit is the one who is aware and admits to being aware that he is utterly sinful and has nothing in and of himself to commend him to God. He's like a beggar before God. He knows that anything he gets is based on what God would give to him. Poverty of spirit now is the complete opposite of the pride and the selfishness and the independent spirit which is prevalent in our world today. Just turn on the television and you'll see pride everywhere. The world has a completely different concept of blessedness. The world would never, ever say, blessed are the beggarly poor in spirit, would they? They would never say that. Rather, what would they say? They would, and they do say things like this. Blessed is the man who is independent. Blessed is the man who knows what he wants, and he goes out, and he gets it. Blessed is the man who is strong. Blessed is the man who's always right. Blessed is the man who outsmarts everybody else and climbs the corporate ladder to success. Blessed are the rich. Blessed are the popular. Blessed are the beautiful. Blessed are the talented, right? Aren't those just things that the world tells us? 
I would never say, blessed are the beggarly poor in spirit. I mean, that's total contradiction to what they believe. These definitions of blessedness, the ones I just gave you as examples, are all based on human secularism. You know, the, the false teaching that says the answer to life is found where? Putting self on the throne. The answer to life is found in self. And sad to say that philosophy, that false teaching, has even crept itself into the church. It might be called something other than pride. It, it might be promoted as biblical self-esteem. But nonetheless, it is really Christian narcissism, Christian self-love. True blessedness does not come from self-love. True blessedness comes from dying to self. And boy, if that isn't something we have to work on all our lives. Dying to self. Self is always, always popping up. And we cannot know God's approval. We cannot know his blessedness apart from having poverty of spirit. This is where it all starts. And as we go through the whole Sermon on the Mount, you'll find almost every week we're going back to talking about poverty of spirit. This is where it all begins. You cannot get God's approval without having poverty of spirit. It was poverty of spirit that made David the greatest king of Israel and a man after God's own heart. As a young man, David had said to God, Who am I that I should be son-in-law to the king? That's in 1 Samuel 18, 18. And when he was an older man, at the end of his life, he still knew that same poverty of spirit. He didn't get puffed up because he was the king, you know, after he had been king for many years. He said, likewise, Who am I, O Lord God, that thou hast brought me hitherto? That's why David had a heart after God, a man after God's own heart, because he had such poverty of spirit. It's interesting that the Lord's very first public sermon, do you remember where his first public sermon was given? Hint, hint. <laughs> in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And he had uh, began that sermon by reading from Isaiah 61, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He stopped at the beginning of verse 2. But he started out by saying, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. The meek of whom Isaiah was uh, referring there were the exiled of Israel who had not compromised and those who had looked to the Lord God to save them. In other words, the meek of whom he was speaking were those who were poor in spirit. The remnant of God's people has always consisted of those who are poor in spirit. Think of Mary from whom the incarnate Son of God was born. Remember when uh, she got the news about the Holy Spirit and how he was going to pass over her and she was going to have the Messiah, give birth to the Messiah, and she gave that song of praise in which she said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. That's evidence of poverty of spirit she had it and when the lord jesus was born holy angels gave the great announcement not to the religious establishment there in jerusalem but who did who did the holy angels give the announcement of the birth of the christ to 
lowly shepherds outside of the religious establishment, humble, poor in spirit shepherds who were outside Jerusalem. And when the infant Jesus was first taken to the temple, who was it who exalted him when he was eight days old? Simeon and Anna both were representatives of the poor in spirit for whom Isaiah had predicted that the Messiah would come. And so it's interesting that here the very first beatitude also matches up with the first thing that the Lord Jesus spoke in that first sermon there in Nazareth when he said that, how does it go? Uh, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. And there he was really speaking of the poor in spirit. The fact of the matter is that no one can be saved apart from being poor in spirit. This is how it has been ever since the very beginning. Without it, man does not enter into the kingdom of heaven. The spiritually proud, the morally proud, the vain, the arrogant, and the self-sufficient who think there is something within them or some amount of, of good that they have done that will cause get God to accept them are lost. Do you ever think that way sometimes? Do you ever find yourself thinking, well, you know, I was such a sweet little girl when I was young. No wonder God picked me. <laughs> you don't think that way. <laughs> I mean, if we shouldn't because there was no nothing good in us, no reason why he picked us instead of a, a sister or a brother or a friend or a lost loved one. There was nothing, it was nothing in us. He just sovereignly chose us. So if you think there's anything little good in you that caused him to pick you, you're wrong. Poverty of spirit. We cannot see the kingdom of heaven without it. Now another truth is that we never outgrow that first beatitude. Actually, the more we grow spiritually, have you found this? The more you grow spiritually, the more profound will become the sense of your nothingness apart from Christ. Um, your poverty of spirit. You know, when I was a, became first became a Christian, it was the big sins that I grieved over and mourned over. And now as I grow in my spiritual walk with the Lord, I don't have those big sins anymore. You know, they're long gone. But the little sins, I mean, something little that the world would just laugh at, that's what bothers me. And that's progress. But we will continually, we should continually have an ongoing sense, an ever-growing sense of our poverty of spirit. And that's good. That's really great because our poverty is the occasion for Christ to then pour on us his spiritual riches. The reward for poverty of spirit is um, both now and future. It's, he's, Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is present. Notice it's in the present tense. Because the kingdom of heaven, as we said, exists now. It exists within the hearts of believers. We are his subjects right now. He's the king, we're his subjects. Our citizenship is in heaven right now. We are merely pilgrims passing through this world. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies when? Now, as it says in Ephesians 2.6. We are a kingdom of priests now. Our poverty of spirit is a reservoir of authority and power. We are joint heirs with who? With the Lord Jesus Christ. Pride makes slaves of all it possesses. Those who are proud are really a slave to their pride. But poverty of spirit makes us free 
to be all that God would have us to be. And that's, that's true Christian liberty. So, the poor are rich. You see the divine paradox? Let's move on and talk now about mournfulness. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The first beatitude, poverty of spirit, talked about or dealt primarily with, with our minds, our intellects. It's necessary for those who come into the kingdom of heaven to understand or to comprehend up here that they are spiritually bankrupt. Oops. So it's more of a, a mind thing, an intellectual thing. But the second beatitude deals more with the heart. It deals more with the emotions. When we see ourselves for the beggarly sinners that we are, our emotions will be stirred to mourning. As, as you can read more about in your notes, because I didn't get into this here, but um, the mourning that is blessed is not a reference to somebody's sorrows over their difficulties in life. It's not referring to, to um, the, you know, crying or weeping over, over the heartaches that life brings to us. Mourning by itself, just weeping by itself, is not a blessed state, is it? Just, you know, like if you lose a loved one and you're crying. That's not what, we're, what, what it's talking about here as being blessed. That's just really a natural sorrow, which is common to all men, saved and unsaved. It's something that God really built into us, I think, as a kind of a means of healing. You know, when we grieve, it sort of helps in the healing process. In fact, there is mourning, M-O-U-R, you know, I'm talking about that kind of mourning, weeping. There is a mourning which is actually sinful. There's sinful mourning. Amnon, for example, we're told in 2 Samuel 13, 2, Amnon mourned because his lust was not fulfilled with Tamar. Of course, he did go and fulfill it, but uh, that was a sinful kind of mourning. And um, Ahab mourned because, remember when he went and had a big pity party and cried and Jezebel came in and said, oh, honey, what are you crying about? Well, that was a sinful kind of mourning. Ahab was mourning because he wanted Naboth's, uh, Naboth's uh, vineyard and he couldn't get it until his wife got it for him. So that's not talking about, we're not talking about natural mourning and we're not talking about sinful mourning. And neither did Jesus refer to the type of long-faced, forlorn, grim, cheerless kind of attitude that some Christians think that they have, need to have in order to be um, pious and, and spiritual. Have you ever seen Christians who go around looking like they've sucked on sour grapes? You know, that's not the kind of mourning that we're taught. Well, like the Pharisees did when they fasted and they put on their long faces. Charles Spurgeon once commented that some preachers he had known seem to have their neckties twisted around their souls. <laughs> but Jesus isn't talking about, when he said, blessed are they that mourn, he's not talking about any of that type of mourning. He's talking about good mourning. Good mourning. He's talking about good grief. <laughs> One of the commentaries used that. Good morning, and I thought, I like that. Good morning and good grief. That's the kind he's talking about. That is... The good morning is having mourning over your, your sorrowful because of your own sins. It's a sorrow over sin. It's indeed a marvelous day when a sinner is confronted with his sin, own sin nature. 
you know, with his own individual sins. And when he refuses any longer to rationalize those sins or compare them with the sins of others and say, well, I'm not so bad because look at that person. He's much better, uh, much worse. Or uh, when he tries to blame shift them onto someone else, as Adam and Eve did. Remember, oh, it's that woman you gave me. And then she says, oh, it's Satan. It's a wonderful great day when a person finally is confronted with his own sins. It's a great day when he calls sin by what it is. What is it? Sin. <laughs> it's a great day when he begins to mourn over what his sin has meant, not only to his own life, but to the lives of those around him, to the lives of those he loves, and also to his own eternal soul. But it is the greatest of all days when a person mourns in deep sorrow with a contrite and a broken heart, understanding that his sins have really been a rebellion and a hostility toward a holy God, because it is upon that kind of mourning, it is upon that kind of weeping, that the divine smile of God begins to break. Now, the world today shuns sorrow. In fact, it shuns sorrow and weeping and mourning so much that it is attempted to go to the very opposite extreme in its attempt to avoid it. Everywhere you find people trying to structure their lives so that they are constantly being entertained and amused. They try to make life one big giant party. They're constantly wanting to do something, go here, go there, because they don't want to have time to think, do they? Our society and our culture have really overdosed on amusement. They laugh at everything, and they laugh at anything. And the more they laugh, have you ever noticed, the more they laugh, the more hollow their laughter sounds, because they're really trying to cover up the emptiness that they feel in their souls. They laugh when they really should be crying many of the times. They laugh at sin when they really should be mourning over it. They look at those of us who do mourn and grieve and sorrow over not only, you know, our, our sinful state, but the sinful condition that our world is in. And they look at us and they make fun of us and they call us uh, religious fanatics and, or psychotics and they regard us with hostility and suspicion. In fact, there really, there is a large growing segment of Christendom which avoids, totally avoids, the subject of sin altogether. And, you know, there's a large segment of Christendom which is, again, buying into this philosophy where let's uh, not make the people unhappy by talking about sin. We don't want people to be unhappy. We want to entertain them. So much of uh, the many churches have gone to this entertainment motive. Um, not motive, but whatever the word is I was looking for. And so they don't talk about a sin and they don't talk about hell. But true Christianity manifests itself by what it weeps over and by what it laughs over. True Christians mourn over sinfulness and they laugh. Actually, we have more to laugh about and be joyful about than anybody, don't we? We can laugh with joy over all the wondrous things that the Lord Jesus has done for us. And all the wonderful, joyous things that we have to look ahead of us in heaven with him forever. A person cannot be forgiven if he is not sorry for his sins. That's it. He can't be forgiven if he isn't sorry. You're not going to forgive your child if they're not sorry, are you? I mean, you shouldn't. 
That's bad discipline if you do. Spiritual mourning is absolutely necessary for salvation. Have you ever thought about the fact, and one of my commentaries made this point, and I thought, that's really good. Have you ever thought about the fact that there is one thing that is worse than sin? There's one thing that's worse than sin, and that is, right, that is denying sin. Denying sin is worse than sin because the denial of sin makes forgiveness impossible. So therefore, it is worse than sin. The very saddest situation in life is not a sorrowful heart, but a heart that is incapable of sorrowing over sin. Right? Because that life is without God's grace and without God's comfort. Without having poverty of spirit, no one can enter into the kingdom of God. Without its emotional counterpart, which is mourning over sin, no one can receive the comfort of Christ's forgiveness and Christ's salvation. Genuine believers, then, are those who have mourned and, and really who continue to mourn over sin. Because do we continue to sin? Yes, we do. Actually, mourning over sin is vital to our spiritual health. Godly, growing believers who perpetually mourn will also perpetually repent of their ongoing sins. You know, we confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So we, we stay in tune with him. We stay in fellowship with the Lord. As we grow in our knowledge of God, it's just going to naturally happen that we're going to see more and more of his holiness and, and more and more of our unholiness. So we'll have this ever-deepening understanding of our own depravity, which will result in an ever-increasing comprehension of just exactly how much the Lord Jesus did for us. And we will want to then draw closer to him and to obey him more fully, and we will continually then receive his comfort, the comfort of God. Believers will also weep with the Lord, we will, as we grow, we will learn to mourn with Jesus in his compassion for the lost and for the sorrows of the world that have been brought about because of sin. Jesus was referred to as the man of sorrows, wasn't he? Man's sins really grieved him. They absolutely tore him up because he understood and he could see, you know, down through the corridors of time, he saw the heartache that they would cause, that they had caused in the future and the heartache that they would cause, I mean, in the past, that they would cause in the future. And the Lord was filled with a self-consuming zeal to relieve the weeping and the woes of humanity. And his heart was always heavy with sorrow for the multitudes of people who refused to come to him that they might receive eternal life from him and also the comfort the sole comfort which he alone could give them. Remember when he stood there looking over Jerusalem, how grieved he was because she would not come to him and have the comfort and have the, the kingdom and all, all of the blessings he wanted to share with her? So <clears throat> as we grow spiritually, we will increasingly share the heart of Christ and the sufferings that he felt for mankind. So search your soul again, see if that's happening. Are you growing spiritually? Are you having more and more of a burden and a sorrow for the lost out there, for the world of lost men? Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted, Jesus said. The basis of comfort is forgiveness.
Christians are the only people in the whole world who are set free from the guilt of their sin. Furthermore, our forgiveness is accompanied by a changed life, a changed perspective, a, a new outlook, a new hope and eternal perspectives so that much of our personal sorrows are diminished. There's a new comfort to our lives when we realize the sovereignty of God's hand, right? You know, when you realize that God is in control, it takes away a lot of your grief. I mean, you might still have grief and sorrow, but when you recognize his sovereignty, it changes your perspective on everything. When you know there is heaven to look forward to, it just changes your perspective. And so you... you um, you're comforted in that. I am comforted knowing that God works all things together for good to those who love him. You know, I'm comforted by the fact that one day I will be in heaven with my lost loved ones again. My lost loved ones. Saved loved ones. <laughs> That's right. Well, they're lost to me right now because I'm not with them. That's what I guess I was thinking of. Um, and so you, you have comfort in, in realizing the sovereignty of God. And you have comfort in clinging to the promises of God. There's comfort, too, in being release, released from our fears. I used to have all kinds of phobias before I was saved. One of them was thanatophobia, which is a fear of death. And I rightly needed to fear death. But when you're um, saved, you're, you're released from all those fears. That's comfort. For God has not given us a spirit of fear of power and love and a sound mind. We're, we're uh, released from having all kinds of petty jealousies and, uh, and pity parties, we should be, <laughs> and from contentions and from worries, on and on and on. So there's comfort in all of that, isn't there? So Jesus stands truth on its head when, in effect, he says, do you want to be rich? Do you want to receive the kingdom of heaven? Well, then be poor. Realize and acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy. And he says, do you want comfort? Then weep. <laughs> Mourn. Do you want to be happy? Then cry. And the amazing thing is that what he says is true. It, it seems like it stands truth on its head, but what he says is absolutely true. It's contrary to everything that the world would ever teach, but it really, really works, doesn't it? It does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the divine paradoxes of your word. Thank you for the truth of being poor in spirit and the truth of being mournful that we can, by these things, be blessed. We receive your divine approval and that we receive your kingdom, and that we can be comforted by the Holy Spirit, our comforter. Oh, Father, as we take this lesson home and study it more on our own time, I pray that you would help us to really examine ourselves. Help, Lord, us to have the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ. May the word of God truly dwell in us richly in all wisdom. And whatsoever we do in word or deed, may we do it all. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father by him. And Father, as we go into this Thanksgiving time, may we truly, truly be thankful for all that the Lord Jesus has given to us. And Father, if there is one who has never truly understood her, her spiritual bankruptcy before you, that in and of herself she can 
do nothing to save herself if she has never mourned over her own sinful condition before you. I pray, Lord, that she would do that, that she would seriously consider her situation and turn to you as her source of, of release and comfort and, and, and forgiveness and salvation. Lord, I ask that you would go with each woman, have her, help her to have a wonderful uh, holiday break, and um, just surround her with your love and your peace and your joy. For we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.